the body is murderous in their intentions towards everybody else. They can't hold them back. Submit yourself to one all-powerful absolute sovereign. Thomas Hobbes, the great 17th century natural philosopher, called this... Leviathan! I like shapeshifters, only a lot more into evil folk, and nothing can kill them. Hello, the Internet, and welcome to the first podcast of the series entitled Lands of Leviathan, which, as I'm sure most of you know, is a homage to Thomas Hobbes. My name is Peter Sleeman, and in this podcast, we will be discussing political theory and international relations theory as it relates to popular culture. By popular culture, we're mainly talking about really nerdy stuff. Star Wars, Star Trek, the Jedi Council and the zombie apocalypse. With me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Brock Rudderman. Would you like to introduce yourself, Brock? Hi, members of the internet. I'm uh, very interested in international relations theory. I look forward to discussing some of the basic concepts there within the realm of popular culture, and uh, hopefully we can have a lot of fun. Thank you. Just to give you a bit of background about myself, I am, would you call me an expert <laughs> on the political... Dip, uh, political domestic theory and Brock is our resident expert on international relations theory and uh, I'm better at Star Wars than him so uh, that gives me an edge here <laughs> what do you think Brock? And uh, that's a more self-acclaimed titling there yeah but you know it's, uh, it's, you know, it's not self-proclaimed and it's not arrogant if it's true so that's all fine <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> Today we're going to be discussing state formation, which is a very exciting topic. Anybody studying, um, doing politics 101 will be bored with names like Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. However, we're going to be looking at it from the point of view of the zombie apocalypse. And with regards to that, we're discussing things like The Walking Dead, uh, Dawn of the Dead. What else do we have, Brock? Oh, we've got Night of the Living Dead, Return of the Living Dead, 28 Days Later, we've got phew, everything uh, from speed zombies to slow zombies to religious zombies. We'll be talking about it all. Excellent. So, to start us off, firstly, I think that we should discuss uh, our types of zombies. Um, so, I think we've got three types of zombies. Um, I'll go first, and then Brock can take up the second one. Uh, because that's his area of expertise. So the first type of zombie that I think everybody's familiar with, that is the standard zombie apocalypse of today, is the what we're labeling the medical zombie, the, the virus-laden zombie. So these zombies are infected with some sort of virus, and I don't want the internet to argue with me, so what's going to happen is we're going to define this very specifically. The virus gets into the brain, kills the host, reanimates the body but the body still remains dead um, and the virus then basically uses the body as a puppet and that zombie can then walk around do whatever it wants until it either falls apart from rotting or get its head blown off and the only way to kill the zombie is by destroying the brain um, and these are the type of zombies you see in the walking dead dawn of the dead no 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 not dawn of the dead actually brock uh, would you like to take us away with the religious zombie? Well, that's the religious zombie that we, we refer to in The Dawn of the Dead, where the main character, Peter, has uh, a throwaway line, really, <laughs> on 
why the dead have been reanimated and he claims that his father reminded him of uh, an ancient Haitian or voodoo belief that once hell has been filled up with evil or bad spirits then there's no more space for them to fit in there so they uh, roam the earth by animating corpses and uh, raging terror on all the living hmm. okay wait, hold on but does that include uh, zombies that are risen by like voodoo cor- curse yes yes it does include that uh, that's that is what I, we are led to assume by Peter's claim that uh, it comes from that tradition where the, sometimes the practicing voodoos do not necessarily require a corpse or a dead person. Sometimes they can reanimate a living person, uh, but by channeling an evil spirit into it. However, this hasn't been ref- made reference to in the vast amount of popular culture so uh, as far as we're concerned this is not the most commonly referenced type of zombie okay so i think what's important to take away from the religious type of zombie is that in these fictional universes the supernatural exists and specifically in like um who who did dawn of the dead uh ramon what's his name ramiro ramiro I'm not a nerd. Um, Ramiro, uh, in, the, in the world of Ramiro, it's not only supernatural, but Christian. So God exists in those worlds. And we're going to be looking at what happens to a state in which that is the case. And no, th- no? This, is not a, this is not a Christian world. Not necessarily. It's, a, it's definitely a theist world. A God exists, and, is, and it's a good God. Uh, it has to be a good god so that uh, there's a, it antagonizes the evil one or the one who's in control of evil spirits or hoards evil spirits. There's no reference to a Christ figure or a son of God, but mostly just that there is a good god, there is a bad guy, and the bad guy is in con- sort of responsible for the evil spirits that uh, have taken to the earth. But you could make the argument that if there is a hell to be f- too full with souls that they spill up into the earth, that it must at least be a Judeo-Christian world in which those things exist, because only those religions have a hell. Um, do Jews have a hell? Uh, they've got like a shoal. Um, That's true. Yes, yes, they do have a shoal. Yep. Uh, but there's also an Islamic hell. Um, there is an Islamic hell. even... Yeah, and even in ancient, even pagan tradition, there's a there's a, a form of you know nasty afterlife that awaits people who uh, don't do, perform too well. Uh, but it is less judgment on the person's character in, in those pagan traditions. Uh, so I'm not I'm not willing to, to to settle on a Judeo-Christian form of uh, the- theism that would that comes out of the ancient the sort of voodoo or religious type uh, of zombies. Um, but it's not that much it doesn't make that big of a difference I think the reason why there's debate here is probably because it hasn't been referenced that much it mm. hasn't been uh, brought up in you know, popular culture or Hollywood at least has cottoned onto the medical zombie a lot more and they use uh, they use vi- all sorts of viruses and strains and chemicals and who knows what else rather than talk about evil spirits animating dead bodies cool 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 okay so those are the first two types of zombies, and now we have the third type of zombie, which I'm sure that many of our listeners have had 
the drunk debates about whether this actually constitutes a zombie or not. And that is the zombie found in 28 days later, 28 weeks later. Um, And I suppose to a certain extent in Resident Evil as well. Um, And also uh, I Am Legend. Oh, yeah. Although those are like zombies slash vampire things. But they're also but the, the the key similarity there is that they're not dead. Mm. Oh wait, hold on. I, I I would say though, one of the key characteristics of a zombie is that it's mindless. Is that it has no uh, will self agency power of it. Yeah, it has no agency. Very good. Yeah, excellent. Uh, it has no agency. Those vampire zombie things in I Am Legend. Oh, you'd actually have to watch the alternative ending to I Am Legend to figure that out. Yeah. Oh my god! Well, I'm let's work with that then. Come on, we come on. We are, we're going to delve into the depths of pop culture. Let's let's assume people know about the alternative ending in I Am Legend, and uh, at least maybe if they haven't read the book, at least know about it. Absolutely. Because um, that that would complicate that type of zombie a little more, where they do actually achieve some form of self agency. Yeah. Uh, so, self awareness, I should say. Yeah. To to any of our listeners who haven't seen I Am Legend, why not? And to any of our listeners who haven't seen the alternative <laughs> ending to I Am Legend, you shouldn't be listening to this podcast because you're not a big enough of a nerd. Okay, so go watch <laughs> the movies and do some research. Come on, we're not doing all your work for you. Um, but <laughs> let me just do a little bit of a spoiler alert first before I give away the endings. Um, in I Am Legend, uh, the original movie, it's uh, Will Smith beats the shit out of a whole bunch of zombie vampire things and they all die. Uh, In the more nuanced ending, uh, that the original ending that the uh, producers decided not to go with, it is revealed that the zombie vampires are not actually mindless animals, but are in fact a almost a secondary evolution of human beings due to the virus that they've contracted, and have formed a different type of society that has been preyed upon by Will Smith. So in that case, the reason the movie is called I Am Legend is because Will Smith is the legend within their world and he becomes the monster, similar to the way Dracula became the monster in our legends. Yeah, that's, that's a good summation, yes? Yeah, very good summation. I'm impressed. You've done your research for me as well. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Because I don't have a girlfriend, so if any girls are listening to this, I am single. That's really why I started this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is definitely your way to earn social popularity. Absolutely. I have no other means. (laughs) Okay. So, um, the... I think we haven't really explained the third type of zombie that well. The third type of zombie is not dead, essentially. It acts mindlessly, such as in 28 Days, where they're infected with rage. Yes, I'm correct? Yes, or any sort of uh, instinct or animal instinct that overpowers uh, the agency uh, required to be human. So although they're still humans that are technically alive, they uh, they don't think past their ultimate hunger or desire for violence or killing or anger or anything like that. So they're reduced to their most basic animal instincts. Absolutely. Um, And those are the three type of zombies that we're going to be talking about today. So, or tonight, depending on when you're listening to the podcast. Um, What we're going to be doing, firstly, is discussing how the zombie apocalypse actually occurs 
because most movies just brush over how that happens in real life. And then we're going to be talking about how the state as an institution fares within that kind of society. So we're essentially taking the world back to the state of nature and we'll be explaining all these terms um, and references as we go on. And yes, so without further ado, what do you want to do first, Brock? Uh, let's have a bit of fun. Let's let's play with the, the different types of zombie worlds that could produce an apocalypse and quickly see how they would destroy most of the population and render the survivors stateless. Yeah. Okay, so let's start with the uh, medical zombie first, the, the ones infected by a virus that kills them and then reanimates the corpse. Yes, that's a good place to start, uh, given that it's the most popularly referenced type of zombie uh, in all different types of... Uh, recent TV shows and movies. Cool. So, my first contention to put to you, um, and notice that I use big words like contention, is that... I know know it's big for you, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) I find it unlikely that the state would fall to a threat such as uh, even a zombie horde, given that they're, like, fairly easy to kill... And that's why we don't see it in movies. We don't see... In, in The Walking Dead, we don't see the, uh, the zombie hordes actually taking over the, the society. What we see is the aftermath. We just are led to assume that this happened. So why is it that a zombie horde poses enough of, an, uh, of a threat to society that could actually lead to the society's downfall? Well, one, because they are already dead. So to inhibit them or to render them useless in some way it does not involve one bullet to the chest as we've, we've seen in even things uh, outside of the walking dead maybe you've seen you know read uh, world war z where it, it takes a lot more you have to sever their head you have to completely incinerate the, the the corpse um to stop your attacker so that way i think that the state doesn't really know what's coming um they try traditional military tactics and uh, crowd control Techniques that would you know stop a, 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 a horde of of onsetters from attacking civilians and members of state police and the military. Um, so if, and that's not going to work. You're going to be using shotguns, grenades, you know, maybe a few uh, automatic firearms that are not going to put down a zombie. We've seen much more effective weapons like uh, that are typically used in close quarter combat such as uh, swords or katanas uh, flamethrowers even can be useful depending on the power <laughs> that uh, that would that would have to you know repel the the repel the threat i don't think that the the state is armed for that i don't think they're ready to to deal with that kind of a threat they might they might have a chance at a, a medical fight back mm. but the but that will that will take you know research time and money that might that that uh, will still allow enough of a, a you know a destructive period for the for the infected to come and uh, to to destroy most of the population before the state itself gets a chance to fight back. Mm. And even then, I, while the states might have the most resources, it's mostly going to be research houses, or if you saw in World War Z, it's the you know the World Health Organization or some transnational institution but not a state institution that uh, it, that has the means of engineering a medical fight back against the against virus zombies so i don't think the state's going to last okay all right like now that you've said that i find myself 
agreeing, given that the zombie outbreak, unlike many other diseases, I mean, even if you look at the most recent Ebola pandemic that occurred in West Africa, that's not uh, an exponential growth rate. Um, those, yeah. those diseases don't, you know, one person doesn't infect one person necessarily. They have different stages of growth, whereas each zombie is, could, af- could affect at least one other person. And that person could infect another person and another and another and another. So you have a true exponential growth rate across society. Um, Yes. So, and that was another characteristic of a zombie, which I I maybe assumed that people knew, was that if you get bitten by a zombie, you turn into a zombie. There's there's no cure. You're going to become a zombie. That's because the the virus is seen as like a communicable disease that it's transferred somehow by the teeth or the nails or the saliva or the blood of the zombie into your own bloodstream. So or you could do typical med- or you could do Walking Dead style, which is another spoiler alert if you haven't watched the first season. Uh, everybody's infected, and you just have to die to turn into a zombie. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting uh, setup that they've got there, and that the the only real threat then that the zombies pose is not a medical threat; it's just a threat of death. So, um, it's only if they get you with a blow, if they strike you with the with something that could uh, that could cause you to die, then you then you, you know then you're going to turn to a zombie. It's not that if they bite you gently in a soft, affectionate way that you're going to slowly transform into one. Yeah, if you if if you die in The Walking Dead and you don't have actual brain trauma, you you you're going to become a zombie. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay, so I think that I think that we could probably agree for the sake of the argument that the state is not well equipped. Well, the state as it exists today is not well equipped to handle a zombie apocalypse. Um, and if the well, state... Well, let's throw, let's throw a span... Let's throw a span... I'm good, sorry to interrupt you right there. I would say, if the state was having this conversation with us now, if we were talking to presidents and prime ministers, then I wouldn't disagree with you. I'd say the state is equipped because they would be forewarned and forewarned is forearmed. They've got the resources. They could, uh, you know, they it could initialize training procedures that would prepare for a zombie outbreak. But because no one, you know, sees it as a legitimate threat to society, their army is preparing for uh, terrorist attacks or protecting people from uh, mass murderers or you know, severely a, a human threat. And I, I think I think that's uh, an instead- actually that's an excellent parallel to draw. The American government. And uh, we might have another podcast on conspiracy theories, so everybody calm down. The American government did not expect to be attacked on its own soil and was therefore ill-prepared to counter an attack on the scope of 9-11, which was a one-off instance. So I I agree with you on that, that they they would be unlikely to be prepared for a, a mass zombie outbreak. But, but yes, I agree with you. And that same United States government has an official um, zombie outbreak uh, memo that's held by the Pentagon to deal with, with uh, the outbreak of a zombie apocalypse. Um, there's, a, there's been a lot of chatter about it uh, because it's kind of... I'm not sure on the classified status of the document, but I do know that it was drawn up under the pretext of trying to protect society along similar uh, apocalyptic threats. So obviously the United States government doesn't believe that they're going to be zombies, but rather that uh, conceptualizing what that apocalypse would, uh, how it would threaten our society uh, 
mirrors many threats that could be placed, that could be found in other medical sources. So definitely preparing for a 28 days later type of scenario. Yeah, thank you. you yes, I was uh, using, getting myself all talked up and tongue twisters there and you pretty much nailed it. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so given that, if I have one more spanner to throw in the works before we get into state collapse, where would the zombie apocalypse have to start for it to actually... Because as long as one state survives, I think you're, you're, fairly, you're fairly good. You know, if America survives uh, the, the destruction of every other state, that they could take care of the world. Um, which means that if your zombie apocalypse starts in an isolated region, such as Australia or England, somewhere that, that you know, has large bodies of water around it, would that not be able to stop the, the complete breakdown of the international state system? I love that question. That is, that's a really tough one for me to pick an answer to because we, we know that one, if we're, talking, if we're not talking about the rage virus zombies, so not the third type, if we're talking about religious and uh, medical type zombies, then... In other words, zombies, animated corpses, if the corpses already died, then it's no longer dependent on oxygen. And as you, if you've read World War Z, you know that the bodies transfer themselves. They're able to walk underwater because they, they, can, you know, they don't breathe. Um, and the sheer weight of them gets, uh, gets the horde moving through the ocean um, across, I think in, in, the, in the document, in the World War Z book, it's, they cross the English Channel that way. Mm. And so that's how they get into England. Now, obviously, you know, Oce the oceanic continent is surrounded by a much larger body of water, but I think the principle still stands. I mean, even if any government or any collaboration of states was idiotic and or insensitive enough, at least, to, to, to nuke Australia or, or New Zealand, um, they still wouldn't be able to nuke, them, nuke those uh, zombies underwater, right? Yeah. Um, and the, but, but we all know... It, then it just changes the warfare, I suppose, because then you've got to deploy nuclear submarines, which perhaps could uh, then have an advanced underwater missiles. They could uh, they could destroy the zombies and, that and far e down. Even if you did nuke, even if the entire population of, let's say, New Zealand was zombies, and you nuked Auckland, Wellington, you know, the major cities, you're yeah. not going to catch all the zombies in the blast radius. So the zombies in the blast radius, they're, they're gone. All the rest of the zombies, yes. they're zombies. They don't give a shit about radiation. So what you've got yes. is walking tumors that are now radioactive, yes. which is pretty yes. bad for the rest of the population, which is exactly what happens in World War Z. <laughs> and correct me if I'm wrong, isn't there a, a similar computer game that was based on the same principle in Chernobyl? There you run around fighting uh, radiation-infected zombies? Yes, Stalker. Very good game. Yeah, well, that's um, the one. And just, just for our listeners, um, we're going to be plugging a book here. World War Z uh, is a book written by Max Brooks. Excellent book. Anybody wanting to survive the zombie apocalypse, that's required reading. Um, don't watch the movie, though, because Brad Pitt is crap. Yeah. That, uh, <laughs> yeah. For, for some reason, that, that was one of the movies that got uh, higher ratings than it deserved. Yeah, um, totally. Absolutely. But we still deserve like some form of advertising reimbursement from these guys yeah max anyway brooks. we'll talk about that P please off air. Uh, max brooks if you can find me a girlfriend that would be great <laughs> that's is that payment enough then huh? <laughs> <laughs> okay so 
I think we've determined that a the, the medical type zombie is enough of a threat to the state to warrant a a a, a, a large scale um, destruction of the state system. And I think we we need to get into a bit of theory here to discuss what the state system is. So if uh, you don't mind, Brock, I'm just going to give a bit of politics 101 here. The state system... If you, if you, bore, if you, if you bore the audience, I, I will climb into the microphone and be slapping. Oh, no, I, I'll be, I, I won't. I, I, I promise. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the state system as it exists today is based on something called the Westphalian state system. Basically, a state is a defined territory with a defined population... Uh, with a government that controls that entire territory and has something called the monopoly of coercive power over that territory, which means that only the state can effectively use force on anybody within that territory and anybody outside of that territory. So the state can use its police force to subjugate its population if it's authoritarian. But Peter, yeah. where does this monopolistic power come from? Why does the state have it? The state has the monopolistic power, and there are many theories, but I think the one we're going to be using to explain how this comes about here is the social contract theory. Basically, when we're looking at something like the zombie apocalypse, society has broken down to such an extent that everybody's basically running around looking out for number one. Yeah? So you have no guarantee that your neighbor's not going to murder you. You have no guarantee that uh, people aren't going to rape your wife, your daughter, you. I mean, or yourself. This, yeah. this is an egalitarian society, so you know, rape is just everybody gets raped. <laughs> Everyone gets raped. <laughs> Everyone. So, in the in the state of nature that exists in this post-apocalyptic zombie world, people need to work together, don't they? And human beings tend to work together. Um, because we are social beings, we exist within, we have, a, we are, from a biological perspective, we're herd-based animals. Am I right, Brock? Yes, you're right. Um, and we tend to form groups that then oppose other groups in the conflict for resources. And those resources don't have to be just substantial, like food and shelter and things like that. Those resources are, are things like safety, security, um, and you know, any, any other amount of tan, untang, intangible resources. Um, now, in that society or in that group that has no rules, it becomes important that people in the group can trust each other. The only way they can do that is by giving up certain rights that they were given or not that they were born with um, to a larger authority. And this authority is what we call the state. And it's what Thomas Hobbes, the great 16th century philosopher, called the Leviathan, which is uh, the beginning of this podcast, and that's why it's there. Um, And that is how the state forms, and that agreement between the state and the population is called the social contract. Um, Do you have anything to add to that, Brock, or...? Was that good? I do want to add something that uh, just when we establish why people are willing to cooperate and make sacrifices so that a larger authority can enforce their rights, they're not sacrificing their rights. When they make an agreement to set up a larger authority to enforce a peaceful society, they're sacrificing their freedoms. 
And freedoms are different from rights. So if we have a freedom without a state authority, without a higher power, if I'm just living in the state of nature alongside many other individuals, I am free to kill whoever I want, right? Because there's no one who says that I can't. The person has the freedom to defend themselves if they so wish, um, but then, you know, then the best man wins. However, if I want to live in a society where, I, where I'm protected from my neighbor and his threats, then I'm, and I'm going to give up my, my freedom to a higher authority who can then protect me from that, I'm giving up my freedom to kill him. So mm-hmm. although I don't want him to kill me, I'm also I'm not allowed to threaten or kill him. And that's one of the first uh, freedoms that people uh, can identify with. You know, we're very sensitive to people threatening our personal security, and this is because we've been conditioned by a modern state system. Mm-hmm. So, and then obviously after that, you give up your freedom to steal, your freedom to rape. Um, so nobody gets a rape except for, you know, very unfortunate people, um, and we give up a, a whole bunch of other freedoms that uh, we we no longer we, we we don't think are necessary for the founding of of that good society. Yeah. Yeah, yes, that's correct, and it will probably it's probably important to remember that when we say freedoms, it's not the positive connotation people are used to hearing. It's a it's a freedom to do what you like. So it's a negative freedom, and uh, it's a freedom from restraint. So when we talk about freedoms, we don't want people to think you're free to you know pursue your own happiness, but you're also free to uh, avoid serial killers. Absolutely. Brock, before we continue, can you give us a definition of the difference between positive freedoms and negative freedoms? I'm glad you asked me to do that. I wasn't actually prepared for this question, but it's something that I do spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, It's something that the the writer and political thinker Isaiah Berlin has developed, Um, but the tradition is a little bit older than him in thinking about the different forms of freedom. I don't want to bore the, the audience over too much detail, but basically... Negative freedom says that I am free from restraint. I'm free from things that stop me from doing what I want. So mm-hmm. there are no laws going to stop me from going. I mean, today I'm speaking to you on a pretty hot day. I want to go spend some time in a body of water like a lake or a beach. Nothing's going to stop me from getting. There's not going to be a blockade. There's not going to be a, a policeman saying I can't go there. Um, and so that, that, that would be a definition of I have negative freedom. I have the ability. I, I can go to the beach if I want. There's nothing going to stop me. Positive freedom means I have the agency to do that. So because I've identified going to the beach today as something I want to do, then I have the positive freedom to actually go and do it. So it's not only that there's an absence of something stopping me, it's that I have something enabling me. I have the agency to go to, to pursue what I want. If I don't, people who would say who have a problem with positive freedom uh, normally argue against the welfare state. So if I want positive freedom, I'm going to say I want the state to allow, not only to remove the obstacles of me getting to the beach, but I also want the state to provide me a source of transport for getting there. Um, and if I, something should happen to me, like I have, maybe I, you know, I come close to drowning or something, that there should be an authority there to, like a, a lifeguard or something, to ensure my security at the beach. That's kind of positive freedom where this, there's, a, there's power enabling you to pursue what you want. I hope I've explained the difference. Absolutely. So to bring it back to the zombie apocalypse, a positive freedom in the zombie apocalypse would be the government actively training you to shoot zombies in the head. 
giving you the tools and the training necessary to take out motherfucking zombies. That's right. And a negative and that's freedom. That's not going to happen. Well, in the in the state as it exists now. Yeah, in the state as it exists now, the state's not going to do that. Yeah. And a negative so freedom. I want my motherfucking this. rights, bitches. I want the right to train as a zombie killer. Yeah. A negative freedom would just be the state saying, like, well, you can if you want to, but we're not going to help you do it. That's it. Great. That's it. So, so if we were to collectively form a group with some of our audience members that uh, went out every second weekend into the bush to train for zombie apocalypse, the, uh, the government would provide us our negative freedoms by not coming to interfere with our activities. Great. And just um, in that group, uh, the most amount of girls, please. I just want to maximize the chances of a girlfriend in the in the situation. <laughs> but also of repopulating the planet after the apocalypse. Oh, no, I'm not that concerned about that. Like I, I, I just I just want somebody <laughs> to cuddle with. That, that's what I want. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so oh, and in and in that and in and in that group you can have your girlfriend, but I'm the leader. Oh no, I see now now it's getting difficult, Brock. You know, I think I'm gonna start my own group. You know, like I just start my own group. You want two separate states? Because now we're discussing state warfare, okay? Now, zombies aren't the problem anymore. Now it's two groups. <laughs> well, the, now we come back to a question that you, well, something you touched on earlier, is that which, uh, would a survival of which state would give people the best opportunity to buy back into that state? So you said that if the United States were to survive the apocalypse, it would give you know, the, the surviving humans left on the planet the best shot at, uh, at, at, at survival. But the problem is when two states survive, um, and this will get really interesting if one state is a little less formed. So say you had like a really well-developed formed state, like uh, like United States. Or in fact, let's go with Israel. Israel got a pretty great defensive system, pretty great uh, military, very efficient, uh, very well trained, and not that perfectly geographically located, but I still think that they would uh, they'd give the zombies a really hard time. Mm-hmm. But let's take a less formed state. So, like one of the Arab nations, in fact, let's go with the Palestinian state. So, what's going to happen uh, with regards to state formation and state buy in? With, you know, when we're talking about overarching political power and the monopoly of coercive power, when those two states start staking a claim or, or giving themselves a mandate for protecting their citizens, do you think there's a chance of cooperation between them or do you think they're only going to be looking out for themselves? That's an interesting question because it takes away, it takes the discussion out of just competition for resources because in that world, the states aren't competing for resources only, especially if we're looking at Palestine and Israel, um, which is an interesting example. In this situation of a zombie apocalypse where both those two states survive, I would imagine that you're looking at an in-group, out-group situation, yeah, where you've got the people, human beings on the one side in two different states and zombies on the other side that represent a credible and tangible threat to the livelihoods of both groups of people. In that situation, like going with this. in that situation, it's highly likely that the Palestinians and Israelis would put aside their differences and form a unified state against whoa, the zombie. Whoa, okay. 
No, okay, I'm I'm going to step in there. I, I was with you. I like social identity theory. I think it's very useful in discussing the salience of identity when it comes to superordinate threats. So if I'm Israeli and uh, and you're Palestinian, you know, that's pretty important until there's an external threat that threatens our common humanity. So suddenly our common humanity becomes more salient than our religious or cultural identity and we, we're able to work together. So I was with you there. But I, I can see the states maybe helping each other out. A unified state, I, maybe that's a step too far. Because no. in such a... Here's why. We need to appreciate the heightened intensity and paranoia that sets in to nations, you know, surrounded by things like apocalyptic threats. Especially when they're human formed. Although the, the, the zombies might be dead people start freaking out a little bit. So I imagine a few members of, of the relative nations, both Palestine and Israel, starting to lose their ability to distinguish between a zombie threat and, a, and an Israeli threat. Mm. Um, they, see, they could see them as competition. While there might be cooperation at a higher level, I don't think those states are necessarily going to unify if people at lower levels are starting uh, you know, get a bit, get a bit uh, itchy, itchy and uh, trigger happy. I would... I would agree with you to a certain extent, but only from a theoretical perspective. In the case of the zombie apocalypse, we've already seen situations in history where loose associations of states came together to form large unified bodies for protection. Prussia unified to form Germany against a French-British threat. America itself is made up of 13 colonies that unified against external European threats. Those people within them, while they might not have had the level of animosity as the Israeli-Palestinians do, they still unified against a common threat. Now, if that common threat is amped up to the level of a zombie, you know, zombie hordes, and I mean like Middle Eastern zombie hordes, you've got Africa coming in, you've got, you know, the Asian zombie hordes yeah. coming in as well. Yeah, it's a, it's I, a really, it's a, it's a pretty, it's pretty high. mass there. While I agree with you that there would be dissidents on both sides, the state would have to be authoritarian enough to squish those dissidents and say, we're a unified state, deal with it. So I think this actually leads in to my, a question, what type of state would form in the zombie apocalypse? I'm, I definitely don't think it's going to be a... Um, oh, wait, no, wait, before you, before you go uh, on, actually, legally, I, I want to ask sorry? you, not, not what type of state would form, actually, but that, that question, but also more importantly, what type of state should form? Because that might be the oh, more okay. pertinent that, question. A, and it's, it's a more fun question to answer because you don't want to go back into theory about different types of states. Yeah. And I certainly don't think that if we did do that, we'd be able to come up with one prepared to deal with the zombie apocalypse. So that's... Let, let's try and stay entertaining here and, and discuss a normative type of state that ha we haven't found yet that would be best suited to deal with the zombie threat. I am going to go not... We, I think we're going to have to abandon the, the legal um, parameters of state formation because this state is going to have to be highly operational, highly mobilized, um, highly efficient, and it's very authoritarian. Are, are so we saying communist... Much... Are, you, are you saying communist states... Is that what you want? A goddamn commies? That's what you want, isn't it? I don't want a communist state. 
because not everyone is equal. You know, some motherfuckers just cannot help a, a state defend as some other people can help a state defend against a zombie threat. So I don't think everyone's born equal, right? You're gonna get some. You're gonna get some guys, or, or, or even women who just don't have the necessary skills to survive, and they're not gonna be as worthy to the state. And yet the state will still have to look after them, right? I don't think it's a communist state. Um, or at least not a pure communitarian stateless society. Um, I don't think we've seen the, the likes of such a militarized state that would be needed. What do you think? I think that it would be... Uh, obviously, let's to, to take it back to just like basics. It's not going to be democratic because a state like that doesn't have time to hold free and fair elections. Yeah? As you say, it has to be... A very strong state, very highly militarized. Obviously, um, uh, conscription has to be employed. Every able-bodied person has to be a member of the army or at least be able to fight. Yeah. Um, yes. And very good use of resources, which, which does mean that it has to be a modern state. It has to be a state that's able to utilize resources well, build the guns, build the tanks, build everything that it needs to to fight the zombie hordes as well as have medical care on hand for people who turn into zombies or, you know, because you've got to deal with all the other shit that comes along with an apocalypse, whether yeah. it's zombie or not. Yeah, you've got you viruses. Feed people, you know. Exactly. So I would imagine a state that actually looks more like a feudal China than, than a European state, a state that has almost absolute authority over its territory, treats its people fairly because it, it can't, it, it cannot have a revolution. Like, that cannot happen. So I don't think you're going to have any crazy leaders in charge, but you're going to have very strong, powerful people who hold a very tight rein on their people's freedoms, but at the same time are, free, are, are fair. And that will be your social contract. Your social contract will be, we protect you from the zombies, but you give up way more freedoms than, than you've been used to in a democratic state. Yes, I, I like how much emphasis you put on the state authority there, that it has to be absolutist. Um, the, and that you know it's going to happen when the state just, the, the, the members of the state, and I'm talking about now about the leaders, they just assume power. They're not going to be elections. It's not going to be representative. It's just going to be those closest to the resources. So whoever's in charge of building the weaponry, whoever's in charge of uh, health supplies, whoever's in charge of food distribution, those are going to end up being your state leaders. And they have to be uh, authoritarian, so authority-minded uh, and power-associated that they don't allow people to get away with sloppiness um, you know, or poor training or, or, or dissidence. Yeah. And that's uh, a- but, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to go backwards uh, with your answer. I'm not going to go back in history to feudal China. Yes, we might have seen it there. But, you know, I don't think um, they're going to be as well suited for dealing with the zombie threat as something a bit more futuristic. And here I'm going a little bit beyond uh, any sort of reality and looking more towards the the Terminator series where we see how humans have had to survive against a very well-organized, you know, robotic threat in, in Skynet. Yeah. Uh, so let's skip to the the fourth Terminator movie where Christian Bale was the lead. Uh, uh, John Connor, who uh, you know took on the character of John Connor, and they had to they had very strict and formal authority authority structures uh, and power structures. Um, 
but yet the hierarchy was not that well enforced. So everybody mm. had to do a little bit of everything, but nobody could really complain about it. Yeah. Um, so everybody could carry weapons. Everybody could uh, could out could muscle their way their own way out of uh, you know predicaments with with um, with threats. Uh, they had to be able to do that. And those who uh, were just better suited to taking on other jobs did it. Mm. Uh, the leaders got stuck in all over the place, and uh, and they had to perform all sorts of duties. And that's where I think it, it differs from feudal China, mm. where the while the hierarchy exists, there's more, there's a better spread of duties. So I'm going to stick with my com- my communist values here. Yeah, I, agree. I I I I think I agree with you. I think it would, if I had to pick a period of history that it looked similar to. I would still say China, but yeah. but you know, yeah. but very different. I mean, we're talking like militaristic state to the max. You do what you're told. Yeah, you got to do what you got to yeah. do. Um, you know, because it's yeah. a matter of survival. It's only after that, uh, once the zombies have been wiped out, then you could return yes. to some form of democratic state. That would be difficult. But we're looking at a military junta that runs the yes. cu- runs the country well. Um, yes, in essence. So, so where, where have we seen military junta's like that, uh, either in history or in contemporary society, or even in recent history, as well as maybe TV series or pop culture? Um, well, Battlestar I'm Galactica. Go, yeah, yeah, that's a good one. That's Battlestar good Galactica. One. They, they, I mean, the, the military. Yeah. You know, the presidency got involved, but you saw whenever the presidency got involved, they fucked shit up because they were always trying to be democratic yeah. and. The yeah. leaders of the battleship were like, guys, you know, we, we, we're dying here. We, 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 we've got other things yeah. to worry about. You know, we, we can't be... I mean, they, that show could have solved a huge amount of its problems if they just told the civilians to shut up. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I like your answer. I'm not going to take anything away from it. It's just that it's, it's a few hundred people, and to change the scale of it... Uh, let's, let's go back to the, the, probably the most mentioned uh, show today is The Walking Dead. And we, you know, remember the uh, spoiler alert for those who haven't watched season two. At the end of season two, um, when the leader, the sheriff Rick, is uh, has has gotten has incurred some personal losses and has had to do some seriously bad things because he was trying to satisfy everyone's needs and demands, as we've gotten used to in a democratic society. And he turns around at the end of the last episode and says, "I'm tired of this being democratic. This is no longer democratic." I am in charge. I am the leader. And he assumes the power. He doesn't ask for it. He doesn't ask people to vote for him. It's, he just takes over because he knows he's, he's the best that they've got. Uh, so that's the kind of power assumption you know, that, I, that I think about when trying to build uh, a community like you see on, on Battlestar Galactica. That actually brings me to a final point of discussion with regards to the uh, medical zombie. And specifically with regards to The Walking Dead, which personally I find boring as hell. But my contention is that the actual zombie apocalypse would not happen in the way that it happens in that show. And a post-zombie apocalypse. Because in that show, everybody is murdering everybody else. I mean, the amount of people that die in that show is insane. Those actors have like zero career stability. And the, it's, it's ridiculous. I would hate to be an actor on that. The, the best people on that show are the extras because you just dress up as a zombie. It's awesome. But they're not just killing each other. They're killing very important people. They're killing doctors and lawyers and people who would be good for society. So, like, I, you know, 
spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen it, but the governor is an insane psychopath who could only rise to power in very specific situations. Um, you know, like we've seen maybe in Africa post-independence. I don't yeah. think that in the zombie apocalypse, that type of person would ever be allowed to r- rise to power because I just think that the majority of the society would recognize him as the threat he is and just kill him. Uh, what do you think? No, I disagree with you. Um, the, you see, we get to... The, the, the show is very clever in writing his role because they give you both angles of the governor. Um, and his shitty acting aside, he still manages to convince you that he's a true bad guy, but because you get to see him behind closed doors. But the reason why people like that are so successful at rising to power when people are scared is because they can convince people that they are what they what the nation needs. Now, let, let's not go full, uh, full you know, villainous character types here. Let's just talk about, like, war heroes and people who rise to power when the state is under threat, like Winston Churchill, who... who are able to communicate the threat to people, to the citizens, and uh, and convince them that their strong policies, strong power, strong leadership is what's going to get them through the war and win it. Um, and if people can maintain that leadership image, then those individuals are going to are going to become the leaders in a, a post zombie apocalypse society. So I do think the governor is a legitimate leader of uh, of Woodbury, but only of. Woodbury when he's providing Woodbury with a, like a, a semblance of a good life. I mean, eventually, like we know from the beginning that he's a crackpot because we, as you say, we see him behind closed doors. But there's that point when you, he, he massacres like half his own people in the road and there's a whole bunch of other people with him. Like, I, I still, I don't think that those people would just let him go. They'd be like, dude, what the fuck? You, like, this is not, this is not kosher. You are literally condemning most of us to death because your leadership is terrible at this point. Yes, it's I, it, it's symbolic of uh, you know many uh, political situations in in developing countries, and I'd say the that particular aspect of the story was not written very well. The the accountability that the people showed for their leader in that situation was pretty shit uh, and unforgivable. But I it, you know it doesn't mean that the, that that type of leader is going to make a mistake like that. Sure, they did that show, but it's a little bit, you know, I feel like it's a bit of nitpicking. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with you, but we do know that he is that type of leader. Um, So if if there was a Winston Churchill, I mean, Rick is essentially that type of leader. He's, he becomes a very ruthless individual who, Yes. but but he always has his eye on the greater good. He, 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 the things he does are for the sake of the people that are with him, not for himself, yes. not for his own power. Well, and we see that because he's even willing to sacrifice himself. You it's, see the things he's prepared to do. It's, it's very interesting to try, and, just as a side note, to try and conceive of that show uh, with Rick as the lead character if he did not have a son, if he didn't have a dependent, um, if he was only looking out for himself the way Daryl would do, for example. If they would be able to, uh, if you, if that character type would be able to assume uh, the social power needed to lead a group in that kind of a society, but that's going into social theory uh, and away from from politics. See, and I do think I think that's an important point. But my final point I'd like to make is, and and this is a very subjective position. Leaders 
do not create themselves. Leaders are created by the society in which they exist. Winston Churchill only rose to power because of the Second World War, because the Britain at the time needed a prime minister of his exact character, and he was a person in that society that could fill that role. If there hadn't been a Second World War, any historian will tell you that there is no way that Winston Churchill would have become prime minister. Um, you know, it's, it's very, it's very I unlikely. Agree. I, I like the example you've used. It's a, it's the typical example in textbooks used to describe how leaders are. I know that, that's, uh, that's why I used it. And not, I, I read textbooks. <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> no, you pretend to read textbooks. <laughs> the, <laughs> but there, there's just a strong argument for presidents and leaders that are made in peacetime. Uh, while while the, while wartime does demand a certain type of leader, and yes, there is a pocket, uh, a vacuum created for people like uh, Winston Churchill. In peacetime, leaders very much make themselves, and they have, uh, you know, they they painstakingly construct career based on performance and and merit mostly, um, to 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 take the, those high leadership positions. I mean, I'm obviously talking in an ideal world here. There's so many things we could level against modern presidents that uh, would keep us busy for another half an hour. Mm. I, I just think that in the case of the zombie apocalypse, the stakes are so high, uh, you know, that a bad leader is not just, oh, you know, he was a bad leader, you know, all the crops died and he, he made life shit for, you know, 80 years. In the, in the case of the zombie apocalypse, the stakes are you have a bad leader, everybody's dead because he's going to run that place into the ground. So I, I, I yeah. think in that situation, uh, a bad leader, and by bad leader, we're talking about somebody who places their own needs in front of the needs of the people, the, those leaders will not rise to power because they're, they're never given the opportunity to rise to power. You can be absolutely ruthless and very cold-hearted, and, you know, but as long as you're getting the job done, those people will follow you. But if you're not getting the job done, you're out. And I, I think that the zombie apocalypse makes the stakes so high that it makes those decisions very easy to make. So you're talking about how the, the, the sheer ruthlessness of a zombie apocalypse, the nature of the society that you live in, um, it forces a much stronger accountability mechanism that people are much more willing to dethrone leaders that, that, run, that don't run the group well and that don't put the group's interest uh, at heart, take the group's interest to heart, and we see this in, at the at the beginning of the fifth season of The Walking Dead, when the when the leader of that um, that psychopathic that psychopathic leader of the center where you know they chop mm. people up to uh, another spoiler alert that they, you find out mm. when they that they chop people up, uh, living people not zombies to eat them because they've run out of food. Yeah, um, and he eventually abandons the fortress that they own. Uh, to to chase down Rick and his clan uh, to try and kill them on for revenge. Uh, so, th so those kind of moves, I think, is where The Walking Dead takes it too far. Um, you do see a little bit of a tussle around the campfire where people question his authority, but he still manages to uh, to muster up some following to go and chase down Rick, which I think you know, which which explains your frustration very well. Mm. But. Just to, just to finish my rant about the, the Walking Dead, I have to appreciate the show for giving us, uh, you know, up until now, five seasons worth of a look at a relatively small group, 
and small groupings of people trying to survive in that kind of a world. Because up until now, we've been trying to work off movies that don't afford themselves enough time to delve into it as much depth as you and I would like, you know, who are, who are nerds of, of zombie fandom. Absolutely. So, so big ups, big ups to them. I hope they can. I hope they can make some improvements in the mm. in the sixth season and and really it's bring, uh, bring it, up some. If if I were to if I were to make a zombie show, which would probably be boring, because my zombie show would be a whole bunch of different groups coming together and being like, "Hey, there are zombies. Let's work together uh, and kill those zombies, and then we can reform a democratic state." Uh, probably over in a year, everybody's happy. Uh, let's have a beer. <laughs> You know, it's a boring show, but everybody's happy. Because, <laughs> it, I think it's because we think of a zombie apocalypse as a problem to be solved, and we assume that the personnel that we survive with are the ideal personnel we need for solving that problem. But when you find out that you're actually stuck with a bunch of dickheads and motherfuckers, you know, some of them probably convicts that have managed to survive in a prison, that you have to make some seriously difficult moral decisions. And uh, and that, that you know some t- and you're going to make mistakes. So that's how you get a show extending for five seasons. Sure. But I do agree with you that I, I you know we, we like to fantasize about the perfect type of group that would survive a zombie apocalypse because we imagine the the the, the so all the differentiated skills configurations we could put into one group, sort of like you're building a role-playing party-based computer game <laughs> uh, where you can you can I- say right you will be the dual the dual weapons um, you know rogue. Uh, character and you'll have to monitor the food supplies and you will have to you know see to the sick and wounded and so we think you know as long as we have enough people to divide up those roles we'll be okay well as long as i can just be a jedi like then i'm happy jedi Jedi class zombie apocalypse i win it's it's all good (laughs) well this this is maybe a a little a little subtopic which we should talk about sometime is what what's the best weapon to use uh, in a zombie apocalypse? Although that doesn't have much to do with uh, with with political theory and international relations theory. But uh, you know, straight off the bat, it would have to be a lightsaber. It would have to be a lightsaber. There is no better weapon than the lightsaber. But but not just because of its destructive power, but because we've established that to wield a lightsaber, you have to be powerful in the force. And so yeah. if you, it's not just the lightsaber; it's the force that the, the 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 ability of being able to wield the force that grants you you know the the dual threat uh, of being able to you know shove zombies around and chuck them off cliffs just by waving your hand. But also, I honestly think that if you ask that question about anything, what is the best weapon for blank? Lightsaber is always the answer. Dude, I need to take down a battleship. Lightsaber. Dude, I need to cook some dinner. Fucking lightsaber. Dude, just my girlfriend is being really difficult. Lightsaber. It's the only option. It's always the first tool to be used. Oh, that's a, dude, the spider is about to attack me. Where's lightsaber. lightsaber? <laughs> any problem can be solved with a lightsaber. Here's a, here's a trick question for you to end to end the show. Uh, can a zombie would a would a would a Jedi mind trick work on a zombie? Oh, what type of zombie uh, is my is my? Because yeah. okay, medical yeah. zombie, no. Religious zombie, yeah. if it's been raised from the dead, no. Religious zombie, if it's like you know a, a voodoo one where somebody's been like zombified but they're not actually dead, yeah. yes, because yeah. then they've got a working mind. 28 days later zombie yeah because they still have a mind that's still controlling their actions so you could maybe calm them 
That would require a seriously powerful mind trick, though. Well, like Yoda. Yoda. Could yeah, maybe it. Yoda could. Maybe Yoda could could Jedi mind trick one of those. But why? Why like, do? Why do you want a Jedi rage, mind trick a zombie? You could just lightning them. <laughs> <laughs> now, now we establish that I am Yoda and you are the fucking Sith. Yo, well, I'm happy with that. Fucking Emperor Palpatine <laughs> kicked Yoda's ass, so I'm very happy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we're getting we're getting very well, nerdy. Um, any girls who are still listening, uh, I'm not that nerdy, I promise. <laughs> okay, so ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to this podcast. On our next podcast, we will still be discussing the zombie apocalypse because this actually went on for a lot longer than we thought it would. Um, on the next podcast, we will be discussing how s- states will form with regards to the religious type zombie and the uh, 28 days later live runny fast zombies. Um, And there we'll be exploring concepts of theocracies and maybe a bit more of totalitarian states, things like that. Probably throw Hitler into the mix because it's not good unless you throw Hitler in somewhere. Um, Yep, that's what we're discussing next. That's what we're discussing next. And don't forget to tell the listeners about the, all the, the shit that we've said and how much trouble they might uh, have with it. And if they'd like to disagree, they can drop us an email so we can pick it up in our next show. Absolutely. So if uh, we are always happy to get feedback, comments, information. If you guys have any topics, pop culture, that you would like discussed through a political science international relations lens... We're very happy to do that. The topics we're coming up with so far are uh, looking at the Jedi Council and comparing that to the UN. We're looking at Superman's effect on the international relations system. Things like that. Anything you want to discuss. And it doesn't have to be nerdy. It just has to be popular culture. So, I don't know. You want to discuss how... I don't know. What's popular culture? Uh, Friends. Why can't the Friends people actually exist in the real world because they definitely don't make enough money to do the shit that they do I'm warning you now I will fucking resign if we talk about friends on this podcast (laughs) but uh, the email to um, email us on is landsofleviathan at gmail.com that's l-a-n-d-s o-f l-e-v i-a-t-h-a-n all lowercase please like and subscribe to this podcast tell all your friends about it we will be on soundcloud by the same name rate us review us on itunes um you can also follow us on twitter at the same name as well as facebook at the same name lands of leviathan one last shout out is i would like to do a shout out to Jeanette lee a very, very gifted colleague of mine who helped in the design of our new logo for the podcast. Um, Thank you very much, Jeanette. Hopefully one day we can have you on as a guest. Thank you very much and looking forward to speaking to you next time. Rate us, rate and subscribe, share us with your friends.